welcome, welcome back to the second episode of the PsychFlow podcast. I am so incredibly excited to have you here with me today. Today, well, first of all, how are you? Do let me know. How are you? I hope you're having a wonderful day, wonderful week. Hope your Valentine's Day was great, whether you are a happy single or have someone special in your life, or maybe it's complicated. I just hope that you took time to refocus on yourself and, you know, did something that makes you happy. And in that kind of spirit, I want us to sit down today and, as always, think about just think about the things that are really fascinating in our pop culture today. I always want my podcast to feel like you are just sitting down with a friend over coffee or something stronger, whatever it might be, and just really having a talk about the things that are interesting to you. So in that kind of spirit, today we'll be talking about famous horror tropes and folklore stories and the rational medical explanations. We are unpacking the legends of vampires, characters and stories like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, zombies and even the very real, fascinating, still speculated Salem witch trials. And I'm not gonna lie, sometimes I feel like when I see other creators unpacking these events or similar concepts, I kind of get worried that they would kind of maybe, you know, ruin the mystical, magical atmosphere surrounding these cases. But after doing some research on this, I can absolutely assure you that the possible medical and scientific explanations only add to the fascination, to the magic and this mystery surrounding these legends and very, very real events. So what are we talking about exactly? Well, essentially, there's really no nice way to put this or pretty way to paint this, but infectious diseases, autoimmune diseases, the role in psychosis throughout the ages, how our understanding of psychosis has changed throughout history and how infections of the brain can correlate with some of the most fascinating and mysterious events throughout the ages, history of infections and neuroinflammation and psychosis, and we will be focusing on a few specific types of brain infections autoimmune diseases, syphilis, encephalitis of different brain structures, poison and even rabies. Let's just get right into this. And so I wanted to start off this episode with something that is very dear to my heart and my absolute favourite, both in fiction and reality, and that's the legends of vampires. These mystical, somewhat sexualized in today's media, kind of romantic, bloodthirsty, scared of garlic and so- you know what I'm talking about. These creatures first originated in folklore in Eastern Europe in the 17th and 18th century, but then the tales of vampires entered Germany and England from where on they popularised and in the end became an iconic part of pop culture. And I think we can all agree that the first name that comes to mind when mentioning vampires is of course no other than Dracula. Described in an 1897 gothic horror novel, the character originated from Transylvania, um, which is a small region in central Romania. So. Let's just remind ourselves, before going any further to the possible realistic explanations behind these legends of the cult characteristics of vampires as often presented in books, films and stories. First off, we of course have the blood drinking, right? Vampires are like, no, that's that's the first thing anyone thinks of is that vampires pursued victims, which not all but most of who were young, attractive virgin women, and vampires, especially in the olden days, tend to be reported as predominantly mostly men. Immortality was another big one. The tales of buried bodies who then seemed to have grown nails and hair over time didn't age, and appearing time and time again after the death have long accompanied the tales of vampires. Another big one was avoidance. First up, we have sunlight from the sparkling vampires in Twilight to the oldest folklore, 
we know that direct sunlight almost has this burning effect on these creatures. They would avoid it at all costs and therefore only come out at night. And speaking of avoidance, of course, we have garlic. So many people during these uh, legends, when they were at peak, they would go as far as to hang strings of garlic around the doors, around the house, or even carry it on them for personal protection. And in fact, when I was little and I saw these strings of garlic hung around my grandma's house, my first instinct was not that she just, you know, it's just fresh garlic that she keeps in her house to cook with. No, it was 100% absolutely because she was trying to protect us all from unwanted vampires in the house and so I feel like because these kind of stories are so deep rooted in my own childhood that's the reason that these stories are my absolute favorite to debunk to listen to to delve into and to talk about Another big characteristic that we all know about these creatures is that they can transform and kind of morph into other animals and most notably that will be bats but also wolves and dogs. They also have no mirror reflection. That's kind of how you know that someone may or potentially is a vampire in a lot of these stories is that they do not have a reflection. Um, here's a little tip for you. If your boyfriend or girlfriend does not seem to have a mirror reflection, you might want to take that as a red flag. But in folklore, the original source of these legends, vampires were not beautiful and sexy and attractive like they are portrayed in the media today. In contrast, they were actually described as quite ugly and bloated and sickly looking creatures that crawled out of their graves at night in order to stalk and attack victims. And this portrait was later altered in order to benefit the novels, the authors and the media. And so they were transformed into these beautiful, attractive, immortal young people who relied on and used the looks to attract equally as beautiful and attractive prey. As we mentioned, this was often young women. And so these characteristics have been pretty consistent throughout the ages, and some of them may have been slightly colorized or changed to fit the interest of authors and media, but a lot of the core beliefs that we have about them today remain the same. And so bearing that in mind, I want to compare what we now know to what was going on during the 17th century outbreak of rabies in Hungary and other parts of Central and Eastern Europe, where as we know, all of these legends originated from. So a Spanish neurologist in the September issue of Neurology, the scientific journal of the American Academy of Neurology, wrote that rabies and the rabies virus affects the brain through the peripheral nervous system. It is a fatal disease when untreated and usually transmitted through the bite of an animal. Many of the characteristics attributed to vampires also appear in people with rabies. For example, the fact that they are usually men. Rabies affects mostly men. It's actually seven times more frequent in men. And some of the rabies patients have a tendency to bite other people, as well as becoming hypersexual, which would explain the attacks on young, attractive women, as well as explaining the aura of just overall sex when these creatures are, you know, described and are so often reported in. There's often this, like, romantic and romanticizing of vampires that's going on, especially in today's media. And I feel like that would be because of this very over-sexualized and hypersexual nature that these patients can show. The tendency to avoid sunlight and garlic can also be explained through the tendency to overstimulate, shown in rabies patients. These patients often become hypersensitive to stimulation. Things like water, light or strong smells can cause overwhelming and unbearable sensations and therefore are often avoided, explaining the avoidance of sunlight, garlic and even mirrors due to their reflective nature. I feel like the lack of reflection can almost be characteristic of human nature to add little details 
details and bits to stories heard from other people and in the end completely misunderstand and morph over the years something into something completely different. So I feel like these stories that started off as afflicted patients simply not wanting to come near mirrors due to the fact that it can cause them essentially just overstimulation and overwhelming feelings, negative feelings, I feel like those stories evolved into stories of vampires who were too scared of mirrors due to the silver layer or maybe the fact that they lacked a reflection didn't want to get near mirrors because they knew they could be spotted and outed as a vampire i feel like this if anything just shows the creativity of women and men back in the day and probably even now the nature of gossip and talking about something for so long that it becomes something completely unrecognizable. Nighttime activity can also be seen in patients with rabies who develop insomnia and they have like a tendency to wander. Combine that with the aversion to sunlight and hypersexuality, I feel like it explains pretty well why vampires would so often be seen wandering or hunting during nighttime. Another very interesting phenomenon I feel like portrays the lack of logical thinking when people are scared essentially. I feel like we are very easily influenced when we are scared, when we are just trying to look for a rational somewhat explanation but especially back in those days because if you think about you know morphing into other animals there's absolutely no way that a person can do that unless by some supernatural force but it can also be explained by the fact that the rabies virus can affect animals like bats or dogs and wolves in the same way it affects humans. So the author of the research paper wrote, it would be imaginable that men and beasts with identical ferocious and bizarre behaviours might have been seen as similar or the same being. And so essentially what he's saying is that if you are scared and you know you are living back in that day and you see someone acting so incredibly aggressive and just odd and then you see an animal acting the same way it's not too far of a stretch to think that these people just thought that person turned into that animal showing the exact same behaviors the lifelike appearance of these corpses can also be explained. The immortality factor can also be explained. In the 17th century, corpses were often exhumed to determine whether the dead person was truly dead or maybe a vampire. And they were doing that by looking for signs of vampirism. And that was things like lifelike appearance and maybe blood flowing from the mouth, which would indicate that this vampire does go out at night and feeds on people. And then they have this leftover blood from the feeding left on their mouth. But Deaths from rabies can leave blood liquid long after death and corpses can have blood flowing out of their mouth as a result of the disease before their death. Burial in cold humid places such as the Balkan region in Eastern Europe can preserve any corpse for months or even years which would explain the reported immortality and why these dead people looked, for lack of a better word, so good at the time. The origin of the legend, again, because of the epidemic of rabies in Hungary at the time, in wolves, dogs, bats and other animals in around 1721 to 28, explains very well where this whole phenomenon and this legend comes from. A lot of the time it's human nature to blame supernatural and create the stories when we are met with something we've never seen before, we've never heard of before, or maybe even if we experience an illness on an individual basis. We've never seen this person be sick before, not like this, and it's never happened again. And so the only rational explanation, especially back then, but sometimes even now, is to just blame the supernatural and hope it doesn't happen to us. 
And so talking about the supernatural and blaming it for the things that we don't understand, let's move on to our next medical mystery, a slightly more complicated one, the curious case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And so let's start with just painting the scene of our very well-known characters. Let me take you back in time to London in 1885, where a lawyer is investigating the strange occurrences between his friend Dr. Henry Jekyll and the odd, unlikable Mr. Hyde. We have been told that three the portrayal of both of these characters being the same person, I mean spoiler alert if you haven't read the book or ever heard the story, the author Robert Louis Stevenson was trying to present the nature of human personality, the good and the evil, the sociable successful concerned about outward appearance doctor and then the paranoid antisocial unlikable dark character criminal on the other side Mr Hyde. And it can absolutely be the case, I'm sure it can be used as a metaphor in that sense, I have also seen it being used as a metaphor metaphor for England and the state of the political and socio-economic status at the time in the country and it can absolutely 100% be that but I want to also offer a different perspective to that story because when you look a little deeper into this period of time and the characteristics described in the book we can see some similarities between the characteristics described in the cases of real people around this time in Europe and so let me tell you about the case of a patient in Wakefield as described by the British Psychological Society in 1887, so only two years after the setting of the novel. And so the case relates that on the 10th of January 1887, a 33-year-old patient was admitted to West Riding Asylum in Wakefield. He had been brought there after causing too much chaos for the staff of Bradford Workhouse. He was shouting, fighting the other inmates, attempting escape, he was violent and aggressive. And his brother told the committing doctor that this patient had contracted what was called the lady's disease two years ago and very much just gave in to drinking and bad habits. And the lady's disease, especially back there, was probably a term that was used most likely relating to venereal diseases such as syphilis due to the fact that sex work was incredibly common during that time. The patient's diagnosis was mania with general paralysis, prognosis was very unfavourable and in fact just over a year later this patient was dead, having become steadily weakened and eventually slipping into unconsciousness. But this patient's case was nothing out of the ordinary, in fact it mirrored asylums across Britain in the late 19th century with hundreds of people receiving the diagnosis of general paralysis of the insane. The majority of these were men in their 30s and 40s, all exhibiting one or more of the telltale signs of this disease. This included delusions, staggering gait, disturbed reflexes, asymmetrical pupils, muscular weakness and the prognosis was pretty bleak with most of them dying within months, weeks or sometimes even days. And so as you can imagine this was a very serious terminal and crippling condition. It ended in a loss of control over mind and body often accompanied by these grandiose illusions and delusions and paranoia and psychiatric symptoms of wealth and power and then finally paralytic death. There was no known cause. Could it be caused by overwork, emotional labour, mental strain, sexual promiscuity, drink? These were all possible causes and at the end of the 19th century up to 20% of British male asylum admissions received this diagnosis. And although now we made links between syphilis and the general paralysis, back then syphilitic insanity was considered a disease that was quite separate to GPI and the treatments for syphilis were so harsh and 
poisonous. As the odd saying went, one night with Venus, a lifetime with Mercury, that even the so-called improvement on Mercury treatment at the time didn't offer much relief as it mostly included poisonous arsenic. And it was not until later on in history of neuroscientific research that we realised that the bacteria responsible for syphilis can actually travel up to the brain and cause what is known as neurosyphilis. So the brain gets severely damaged and in fact if you google some pictures of the postmortem patients they appear to have chunks of the skull just eaten away by the disease. This kind of degeneration obviously as you can imagine causes huge psychiatric problems including dementia, mania, psychosis and even delirium. And so I think what's really really interesting is the comparison of how Hyde was described in the book to the common symptoms of neurosyphilis around that time and firstly I want to introduce you to a whole different perspective of the book. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna throw at you a whole complete 180 of the book. So if you ask anyone to, you know, tell you the basic plot of the book, they will most likely tell you that it concerns a doctor who has an alter personality. He's, you know, preventing him from leading a normal life by displaying all of these unacceptable and sometimes criminal behaviours. But what if I told you that that was not the case? That it actually wasn't Mr Hyde who was the alter ego, but in fact the wealthy doctor. Because there's so many cases of patients who displayed these grand delusions of wealth and power due to their illness right before their death. And so in my head, I was like, well, what's more likely a wealthy, successful doctor dealing with an undiagnosed illness of an alter ego that's antisocial, criminal, evil, this character taking over his body that he has no control over, or a middle-aged resident who has been struck by poverty contracted a sexually transmitted disease in 19th century London, of which a symptom includes delusions of wealth and power. So maybe it wasn't that Mr Hyde was a defect of character or a supernatural being, maybe it was that Dr Jekyll was actually a delusion of what Mr Hyde imagined himself to be. Another quote said something along the lines of, there's something wrong with his appearance, something displeasing, something downright detestable. I never saw a man so disliked. And the degeneration of motor function leads often to a facial tremor in patients with syphilis, spasms or tics in the early stages. And later on, it kind of leads to this fixed, still statue-like facial expression, infrequent blinking and overall profound effects as seen on the appearance of patient's face. The book then goes on to describe for us the temperament and behaviour seen in Mr Hyde. With ape-like fury he was trampling his victims underfoot and hailing down a storm of blows. Patients suffering with syphilis often display what's called a manic episode. You can probably recognise these from patients with bipolar disorders. In these manic episodes, they rapidly change emotions and moods. And during an episode such like this, emotions can actually intensify and irritability can be more pronounced and result in anxiety or violence or even criminal behaviour, delusions, fragmentations of behaviour, acting like not yourself, acting like a person that you don't know, which can be said correlates to Mr Hyde's character. Along with a manic episode, psychosis can also be a cause of incoherent speech, delusions, inappropriate behaviours and social withdrawn paranoia, all of which can be argued as seen in the character of Mr Hyde. Another comparison that's quite interesting though has been drawn to Hyde and epilepsy. So going away from the theory of syphilis and neurosyphilis, which I think is incredibly fascinating, towards undiagnosed epilepsy 
And these ideas have been further explored in terms of historical context and also in terms of how they align with the story in the research paper Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, A Case of Epilepsy in Late 19th Century England. And if you are interested in exploring that idea further, I would definitely, definitely recommend that you read that research paper because it is really fascinating. But I have no doubts at the end of the day that the lack of knowledge by general public as well as practitioners combined with this stigma attached to mental illness in those days gave rise to many, many books and fictional characters which in fact could be loosely based on real life people with real life problems that need diagnosis and treatments, symptoms of which we now come to recognise as real serious problems with the psych. And even though there's no way to be 100% certain of which disorder is portrayed in a book that took place such a long time ago, I think it is safe to say that it's more likely, at least in my opinion, to be based on an undiagnosed psychiatric condition rather than a supernatural monster taking over a person's body at night or even just a metaphor out of nowhere for you know the socio-economic status of England at the time or even just human nature. Speaking of diseases that were quite serious and unfortunately tragically mistaken for supernatural phenomena, zombie horror tropes are our next topic and the tales of the dead coming back to life in general nowadays often contribute to a fictitious virus outbreak but back in the day the legends of what we now know as zombies actually originated from Haiti and their folklore. So similarly as you know with um, vampires that originated from Eastern Europe, zombies have their roots in Africa as well as regions of Spain and Portugal and they often directly translated to a spirit that's supposed to wander the earth and torment the living and all of these folklore and legends and characters were kind of centered around reanimated bodies of the dead brought back usually through magical practices but not always and a new version of zombies distinct from the described in Haitian folklore emerged in pop culture during the latter half of the 20th century largely from the night of the living dead and then transformed our media from films like one of my favourites, Shaun of the Dead, to hit series like The Walking Dead. And I think our fascination with this kind of creature comes from the legends passed down through generations, as well as the small possibility that it could maybe even happen if a mutated unknown virus has, you know, gone viral and gone wrong and then swept the world. But essentially there are two kinds of zombies um, and two kinds of, of the undead that we are familiar with. The slow decaying one, which kind of poses no threat as long as you can outrun them, and the ones that scared the living hell out of me essentially, um, the sprinting ones. An evolution of the zombie came with video games such as Resident Evil and The House of the Dead in the late 90s with their more scientific and action-oriented approach and their introduction of fast-running zombies leading to a resurgence of zombies in pop culture once again. And these are the zombies that we see in films such as World War Z who are governed by impulses with all of the muscle power intact and these are the stories where the body experiences so much adrenaline that the undead exhibit almost superhuman strength. Nothing can stop them in the pursuit of prey. Broken bones, lack of stamina, nothing. No amount of cardio will help you outrun these guys. So what do we know of the undead? Well basically that, that they have somehow been brought back to life, often depicted as literally digging out of graves and attacking the living, their bodies already in a state of decomposition, often linked to magic, especially before the regular portrait in the media that kind of changed them a little bit. But now, 
There's a couple of separate medical explanations for what we know as zombies. The first is a condition called encephalitis lethargica or the sleeping sickness and encephalitis struck during two huge world events, World War One and the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918 and due to this it's been largely overlooked. Even to this day a lot of people don't even know it happened but even though many people in America and Europe have no idea that the plague happened or even you know where it happened or what happened exactly, they have never heard of it. Five million adults and children were affected by this disease which played a great role in further perpetuating the notion of the living dead in New Orleans at the time. The symptoms of the disease started off mild, they included fever, aches, altered behaviour and personality changes, but then they slowly progressed into more serious presentations, mania, aggression, violence. Some of the patients were not as lucky as to experience simply flu-like symptoms before making a full recovery. They were struck with something a lot more serious. Presentations of immobility, paralysis, tics and muscle jerks, delirium and catatonia. If you were one of the really, really unlucky patients, you could experience pseudosomnolence, a condition in which the patient sleeps for an abnormal amount of time. There's been cases reported where patients fall asleep so quickly whilst performing everyday tasks and displaying breathing so shallow that family members thought they simply dropped dead at home. Some would fall asleep whilst eating, walking, using the bathroom, talking to their loved ones, and reports of patients sleeping for days with their eyes open, unresponsive but alive, who often broke out of their sleep and then could recall specific conversations that took place around them during this state. And the book touching on the phenomena I would highly recommend is Dr. Oliver Sacks' Awakenings. In one of his papers he wrote that the patients neither conveyed nor felt the feeling of life. They were as insubstantial as ghosts and as passive as zombies. Many of these patients died and of those who awoke, many developed Parkinson's diseases characterized by neurodegeneration, damage and eating away at the brain structure and later we determined that the encephalitis was caused by a microbe infecting the central nervous system and the brain of the patient which meant that those who did recover had many many lasting effects, altered personality changes and I found case studies describing some of the younger victims who overcame the illness displaying extremely aggressive behaviors consistent with those of the zombies zombies portrayed in today's media. Cases of children attacking the siblings, ripping out the hair or teeth, biting, killing household animals and displaying extreme violence. One case described a young girl who was diagnosed with encephalitis after 15 days of fever who did thankfully overcome the sickness but at a cost of permanent behavioural change. Um, she actually changed so drastically after overcoming the brain infection that she showed behaviours from repeatedly running away from home lying frequently, stealing things, to killing domestic birds and animals and at times her parents even had to tie her up inside the house but somehow she managed to escape. So it seems that encephalitis explains how patients could be perceived as dying due to the length of their sleep, the sudden onset, sleeping with eyes open or even just being you know mistaken and buried because the family and friends thought that they were dead due to the shallow breathing and then coming back to life to haunt the living as zombies because of the changes of personality as a result of the illness. So you know, they had this all of a sudden onset of a sleeping disorder, the family thought that they were dead and then they came back 
not as themselves essentially because they showed this aggression, this violence, this biting of humans and animals, this killing of household pets and so it kind of feeds into the idea of zombies that we have today that's portrayed in the media as you know it's a creature that looks like someone you once knew but it's died and now they're coming back completely changed and unrecognizable. Another possibility could be poison or more accurately something that we now perceive as poison in large doses that was actually used in countries where the tales of zombies first originated. So the Haitian zombie powder was a mixture of chemicals often used in medical healing, magic and even as anesthetic. When further investigated though it was found to contain large quantities of tetrodotoxin, a powerful neurotoxin derived from pufferfish. Um, as well as other chemicals, a lot of the time these powders, because they were done kind of, you know, by measurement of eye, they had so many different things in them that we cannot confidently say what it was actually made out of, but a lot of them had chemicals in them such as the remains of toxic animals, most notably frogs, and even human remains. Some mixes included poisonous spiders and insects, which could have also played a part in the effect seen in those who were exposed to such dangerous mixtures. When administered, some people became paralyzed, many of them still conscious until death but unable to react to any type of stimuli. There's been cases of some patients who had been exposed to doses small enough to make a full recovery, so I don't think it's too far of a stretch to assume that these stories of the undead could be based on real life stories of poisoned individuals who were unresponsive for long enough to be buried and upon recovery, once the toxin actually left the body, they maybe even had to dig themselves out of shallow graves to the horror of those watching who obviously thought that they have just witnessed their loved ones who they themselves buried not that long ago just coming back to life which must have been absolutely terrifying and I am not surprised whatsoever that these tales would then make their way around neighborhoods and you know villages and maybe even towns because that is absolutely terrifying. Coming to the end of the episode, the last point of discussion that I want to talk about is the Salem Witch Trials. Now, obviously, we've been discussing legends and fictional characters, but this is a very, very real point in history, a very traumatic point in history that I feel like is a mark that we will never, ever be able to smudge away. Nor do I think we should, because I think it shows us what panic, hysteria, mass boredom, and potentially unhygienic practices can lead to. And I think it's a point of history that we have to look at and make sure that it never, ever is repeated again. And again, encephalitis seems to play a in not only the tales and legends of zombies, but also recently has been proposed as an explanation of the Salem witch trials. And so let me read you a passage, a historical passage that we have access to from that time. The limbs tormented, the arms, necks and backs turned this way and that way and returned back again. The mouth stopped, the throat choked, they had several sore fits. And this is the description of an 11 year old girl amongst other young women during the Salem witch trials in 1692. Reverend Samuel Paris was advised by a doctor that the girls, his daughter and niece respectively, were bewitched. Now it is important to highlight that doctors during that time didn't carry as much validity as they do now considering most of them were illiterate and a lot of them weren't really supposed to be taken very seriously but still you know if that was the standard of your highest education if that was the standard of a doctor someone who could not count or read or write 
I have questions as to the validity of this diagnosis. Soon though, at least five other girls in Salem village developed similar symptoms and in the end over 200 people were accused of being witches. Nowadays, Michael Zandi, a neurologist at University College London, and one of his students, Johnny Tam, in the Journal of Neurology, proposed that a condition called the NMDA receptor encephalitis was actually responsible for what we saw at the Salem witch trials. So for a long time, not only in Salem, but all over the world, people, and especially women for a long time, these patients were often diagnosed with hysterics. They were sent to asylums or they were just left to die. But now we are beginning to understand that an autoimmune disease could be responsible for so many of these symptoms. A lot of these patients tend to be women due to the condition being a result of a tumor called teratoma. Now, these tumors often appear in ovaries and they are so incredibly bizarre that they can actually grow other mass within that tumor mass, such as hair or even teeth. Tumors like this can trigger an autoimmune response in the body, which begins to attack other structures, particularly in the brain and the NMDA receptors, as well as the teratoma in order to fight the tumor and get rid of it. Here's a story of a typical patient. She initially develops flu-like illness. Within weeks, she becomes possessed by God or the devil, consumed by paranoia and racked with insomnia. Then she repeats the same words over and over again and then just becomes absolutely mute. Next, she has seizures, she has contorted limbs, odd repetitive movements of the mouth and the tongue, her pulse races or slows down so much that is barely able to be felt, her blood pressure rises and falls, she sweats, she drools, she grunts, and then she becomes catatonic shortly before falling into a coma. So the question now becomes, can we actually link this condition to what happened in Salem? Well, researchers analyze descriptions of Betty and Abigail, two of the girls accused of witchcraft, and they think it's actually a distinct possibility. Anxiety and delusions that feature in dysencephalitis seem to have been present in all of the Salem girls, as per historical records. Seizures that occur in encephalitis were similar to the girls who were reported to have several sore fits. The involuntary limb movements that might match the following description arms, necks, and backs turned this way and that way and returned back again. There are parallels between the loss of inhibition and altered mental status of encephalitis and the stories of these girls acting irrational, lashing out and displaying inappropriate behaviors. The suggestion that the girls were hallucinating, there's a very famous passage in which um, one of the girls is described to sometimes making as if she would fly, stretching up her arms as high as she could and crying. The the fact that these girls were occasionally also taken dumb perhaps is suggestive of the catatonia. Brain swelling can also impair speech and the girls were described to have their mouths stopped and their throats choked. So there is a real possibility that these girls were seriously ill, not due to being possessed by the devil or as a result of playing with magic, but because they developed serious tumors which actually caused an improper autoimmune response in their bodies. And the cases similar to these all over the place. Disease symptoms categorized as hysteria around the world and interestingly, due to the medical misogyny at the time, whereby doctors thought that hysteria was a woman's disease and therefore treated by a performance of sexual acts or even a hysterectomy in which a woman undergoes a procedure to remove her reproductive organs, they actually unknowingly 
treated the condition because they removed the teratoma along with the ovaries and it's a sad example of how wrong ideas and intentions somehow sometimes can lead to the correct conclusion because for the wrong reasons essentially but by the wrong reasons because of the wrong reasons and by the wrong treatment ideology these doctors actually saved these women's lives. I personally find these subjects so incredibly fascinating and it really makes me ponder the things that we did in order to be here right now in modern medicine. The sacrifices and unethical treatments that we carried out in order to learn so much about the human body. That is everything that I have for you guys today. Please let me know what you thought down below. Leave us a review and I hope to see you here the same time next week for another episode of the psych floor follow me on all of my social media if you would like to suggest any topics for me to cover and i am looking forward so much to introducing some new guests for you guys too thank you so much for being here with me tonight i hope that you are having a wonderful week and i'll see you next time Bye.